Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Caroline Humer. I'm a correspondent at Reuters, and I'm also your moderator today. Today, we're going to be talking about the 2016 U.S. presidential election. We'll be examining possible healthcare futures. Since the election is a few days away, I must note that our discussion will be somewhat speculative. <laughs> speculative. <laughs> uh, this is an event that is in collaboration with Reuters, and both the forum and Reuters are live streaming on their websites. It is also streaming on Facebook Live. We're going to start by introducing our panelists. To my right, immediately, we have Robert Blendon, Professor of Health Policy and Political Analysis at the Harvard Chan and Kennedy Schools followed by John McDonough, President, Professor of the Practice of Public Health at the Harvard Chan School and former Senior Advisor on National Health Reform for the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. To his right, David Cutler, Professor of Applied Economics, Harvard University, and former Senior Healthcare Advisor to the Obama Presidential Campaign. To his right, Catherine Baker, Professor of Health Economics at the Harvard Chan School and former member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors during the presidency of George W. Bush. The program will include a brief Q&A, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. So here we are, six years after the Affordable Care Act has passed, Billions of dollars have been spent. Some experts say parts of the law are in trouble. Some say health care is not affordable enough. Some national health insurers have pulled out of the individual Obamacare, Obamacare marketplace for next year. There's less competition, and I'm sure that you would have heard by now about the increasing premiums for the 11 million people who are on the exchanges. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced those plans will see on average an increase of 25 percent next year. Both the Republican and Democratic presidential nominees have plans for the ACA. Hillary Clinton says keep what works, fix what doesn't. On her list, tax credits, limits on drug co-payments, watching for drug price spikes. Donald Trump says repeal the law, offer free market reforms. His plans are a little vague, but include tax-free health savings accounts and throwing out the current plan. Let's take a look at a clip from Reuters of Trump reacting to news about those increases on the exchanges. In case you haven't heard today's news, it's just been announced that Americans are going to experience yet another double-digit spike in your premium for Obamacare, and it doesn't work. In some areas, they're paying 60, 70, and 80 percent more than they were paying last year. It's over for Obamacare. And Hillary Clinton wants to double down and make it more expensive, and it's not going to work. I called it when it first came out. It's only getting worse. 
Okay, so um, with that in mind, uh, we'll start here. Um, Bob, you conducted a poll with Politico before the announcement about these premium increases. And um, we'd love to hear what your take is on how they might impact the election. Uh, Bob Lennon, uh, what a surprise following Donald Trump uh, <laughs> uh, uh, for that. Uh, so uh, l let's just quickly go over the basics of elections. So elections are not referendums on issues. Uh, basically, uh, there are a whole range of issues in the election, plus there's something I can't imagine you would think of called character uh, that plays a real role in how people vote. Healthcare is a second tier issue uh, in this election. It's not in the top two or three uh, uh, for that. It's likely to impact some very close congressional house races, and since it's gotten some emphasis, it may encourage a few more people who care about this to vote. What matters out of the election is that the country is basically an ocean apart the, among the core people who are Republican and Democrats about the future of this bill. So whoever wins, they're going to bring this. And for an audience that are professionals, it's very hard to, to listen to. Basically, what is driving this is a single set of values. And so I'm going to give you one question, and I'm going to show you how the answer to the question goes. You can ask all your friends and family is uh, this one question. Do you think the federal government should play a major role in improving the health care system? One question. That's it. Watch what happens. You say yes, uh, what, and then you're followed up and said, what is the state of the ACA? Working well. Uh, you're given a choice of six options of what should happen to the ACA after the election. You're split between just implement it as it is or enlarge it or add government. Uh, and then the last point, who are you? You picked major, who are you? Uh, it turns out you're all Hillary voters and you're all Democrats. And then there, the other group uh, who said, no, I don't think the federal government uh, should play a major role in fixing this, okay? Uh, before the premiums come out, how do you feel about the ACA? It is an awful shape. Uh, that's the answer to one question. I don't think they should. It's in, in awful shape. What should happen? Given the same six options, you pick the three. The majority of the people who said it shouldn't be the major role pick uh, repeal, replace, turn it over to the states, or a tax credit plan. There is nobody on the other three expand and add uh, for that. Now, who could these people be? They're just random on the T. No, it turns out they are Trump voters or Republican voters. And even though a lot's been written about it, in healthcare, there's absolutely no difference in answers if you're a Trump voter or, 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 or a Republican uh, uh, voter. Uh, so, in uh, simply then, we'll just look at this uh, for this. Uh, this is baked in the people's heads. It's like we have uh, two things out of the oven and it hasn't changed in five years. If they have the majority, Democrats have the majority of all three. The debate is going to be about how we expand and what role uh, 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 for the government. Uh, if the Republicans hold all three, uh, it turned out, as you'll see in the poll, most of the voters didn't care what it was replaced with. Uh, if there, we had one option here, this is what Paul Ryan wants to do. Uh, no, you know, just get rid of this thing. So the debate would be about cutting, slicing, moving back, getting some compromise. But there is not on the other side in this very deep split in this country about what they actually want as the alternative. So let's just look at the 
uh, PowerPoints very, very quickly, but one point I'll make, because it'll allow us to come together ecumenically after this is over, uh, is that on the drug price issue, pharmaceutical prices, is the one thing where people who say, I do not want the federal government to play a major role, check a box saying they should do something big about pharmaceutical prices when the election's over. This is the only issue we could find uh, that was there. But so let's do this very quickly. So this is the uh, simplest question. Ask the kids, ask anybody. You want the uh, federal government uh, uh, to uh, play a major role. Uh, if you uh, do, as you notice, the Democrats are 87% yes, the Republicans are 28%. Uh, next PowerPoint. Uh, so uh, this, uh, for people who are experts, I know this will drive you crazy. So uh, if you think it's a major role, you want it to play a major role, it is working well. I don't care what the news it is working well. <laughs> and so I only want it to play a minor role. Only 22% think it's working well. And I don't want it to play any role. Well, this is a disaster. Uh, uh, for that. Now this would make no problem at all for anybody except it wasn't attached to a party. Uh, so next slide, you'll see this very quickly. Uh, so this is before uh, we have Trump talking about the rising premiums. It's two weeks before. Notice the Republicans to the right. Without even seeing the expanding 25% increase, 68% of Republican likely voters say that it's working very poorly. Uh, for that. On the Democratic side, it's 80% working well, but they're a little less enthusiastic about how well it's working. But this is no fact, no read, no anything. Uh, I, this thing is a disaster to the right, and it's really working quite well uh, uh, to the left. Uh, next slide. Uh, so this is simple. You are given uh, uh, six choices, which are right what the candidates do. So quickly, if you notice, the blue is the blue is at the left of the choices. You can expand, uh, you can implement it as it is, or you can have something big with government added to it. On the right is get rid of the whole thing, oh, scale it back, give it to the states, and that is Speaker Ryan's proposal, is the third most anemic among Republican voters uh, uh, for that. So there isn't among voters this idea, how would the pools actually work? They don't care. Uh, they really, this is a very deep uh, battle. So we tested one thing, and my colleagues, I'll let them define it later. There is something called a public option which has emerged. Uh, which is to be added to the ACA, and it would allow you to have a government choice. We tried the best we could to describe to people who are high school graduates what this was. I wish my colleagues would have just all agreed themselves for this. But knowing nothing, knowing nothing, the overwhelming majority of Democratic voters said, great, let's do it. The majority of Republican voters said, what an awful idea. Let's not do it. Uh, uh, for that. So this is the state of, uh, uh, of, uh, of health care. With the exception of pharmaceutical prices, if uh, one party dominates, the direction of health policy will be dramatically different. Uh, and so my view different than others, if they split, you have a Democratic president, Republican House, I think there's going to be a lot of conflicts, but not a lot of movement uh, 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 for this. Others believe that whoever doesn't win the presidency is going to semi-surrender and move on. And my problem is in looking at how strongly either side feels about this, I don't find any surrender in the water supply. I <laughs> find people are going to hang in and hold this out. Uh, so bottom line is elections matter not because it's the issue, that the critical deciding issue, it's because the parties are so far apart in this country. 
So, John, I'm, I'm giving you a tough task here because they are so far apart. This has been a divisive issue. I mean, what do you see, what should we expect for the ACA after the election, depending on who wins? Mm -hmm. So I think we can see two scenarios fairly clearly right now. One is that uh, Donald Trump wins the presidential election next Tuesday and more than likely then retains a Senate Republican majority and a House Republican majority. Uh, the other alternative is Hillary Clinton wins. Uh, she may not have a Senate majority. If she does, it will probably be 50 or 51 votes. So those are the two. Those are the two. So if, um, if Mr. Trump wins the election and has Republican control of Congress, then I think we can anticipate, and it's not a secret, a significant effort early in the year, quickly, to dismantle key portions of the ACA. Uh, Speaker Ryan has announced in September that if that's the environment, he will move very quickly on a reconciliation bill, which can't be filibustered and only requires 51 votes in the Senate, to take apart the key financing features of the law as it pertains to the health insurance exchanges, a little ambiguity about what they will do about Medicaid. Um, but they have been saying this, and uh, just the other day, this week, uh, uh, Mr. Trump said that if he's elected, he will summon a special session of Congress as quickly as possible, and the object will be to repeal the ACA. A, a lot of people say, you know, oh, they can't really mean it. They really wouldn't take health insurance away from 20 million people. How many times do they have to say it before we take them seriously? Um, alternately, if, uh, if uh, Mrs. Clinton wins, and uh, regardless of the control of Congress, she has an agenda. The agenda is not repeal or replace. It is to expand and strengthen, improve the affordability of premiums, fix the exchanges so they're functioning better, uh, address cost sharing, not just in the exchanges, but across the larger system. Uh, very much an eight-point plan on tackling prescription drugs and a lot of other things. Um, she'll probably have a tough time getting most of those things entertained seriously through the Congress. Uh, maybe there will be, this will be the first time since the law was signed in 2010 that there would be a democratic agenda to expand and improve it. For the past six years it's been Let's not rock the boat. Let's just get this going. So it's a different place and a different conversation going on. But I think that the, as Bob suggests, the possibilities for success in that kind of an environment aren't that promising. Uh, the last thing I just want to talk about a little bit is, is the role of the disruptions in the exchanges and the premium increases. You know, I, I was a state legislator for a long time back in the 80s and 90s. It seems like a long time ago now. Um, and one of the things that I learned from my experience as a chairman and in other roles is that, you know, when, when two parties liked each other, respected each other, got along, some of the most difficult things could be done with relative ease. And when we just didn't get along and didn't like each other, the simplest things became impossible to do. And so, I look at the problems of the exchanges and the uh, high premiums this year. The first two years, we had premiums that came in far lower than what had been expected, and it went haywire this year because there are, it's a technical term, but there's something called the three R's, risk corridors, reinsurance, and risk adjustment. Right. The first two left are gone, 
and the third one has been significantly undermined. The problems with the exchanges are eminently fixable technical problems where there is a will to work together that we don't see right now. And the example I would put out is Alaska. Alaska saw premiums in their exchanges last summer heading upwards north of 40%. The Alaska legislature, Republican legislature, created their own state reinsurance and they dropped the premium increases to significantly under 10%. Right. So these are not insoluble issues right now. These are technical problems that are caught in a political ditch because of the continuing polarization around Obamacare. Right. This issue of basically how to, how to pay for the sickest customers, how yes. to balance that risk among the, the various different insurers that are, that are on the market. Yes. And, and the irony is that those mechanisms, the three R's, are absolutely standard functions of Medicare Part C, Medicare Advantage, mm -hmm. and Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit. And somehow in those programs, nobody objects to them. But when it comes to Obamacare, they are a communist plot and a bailout to the insurance industry at the same time. And I think there's some significant irony there. So it's, um, it's, it's tough, David, but um, I'd love to hear from you on, you know, are, are some of these technical fixes po possible? Um, what, what, can get, what can get done and how, can, how could one of the presidents, if, if it is Clinton perhaps, um, get them done? Um, so I think there are ways to get them done. I, I, I don't know, this may be the first time in the history of the world where The Economist has been more optimistic than the, <laughs> than the political scientists. So we may, we, we may need to deny that we were ever part of this. Um, but let me just, let me just give, a, give a couple of, of comments, largely in the, in the sense of, let's say it were when we're continuing with the ACA, since I think mm -hmm. if you're starting over, there's so many different ways and there's no agreement. Um, one is, as John said, there are issues with the exchanges. They are largely technical in the sense that what everyone was afraid of is that the exchanges would get smaller and smaller and only sick people would show up and the premiums would go higher and higher. And enrollment is below what was expected, but it's holding steady. Right. So it's, it's sort of there, and because people are subsidized, the, the enrollment is likely to stay there. It's still smaller than people thought, but not... Um, not not declining in a way. The key issue on the exchanges is going to be how can you boost enrollment and in particular keep enrollment high among people who are not at high risk of using services, so not, at, at, not, not who are expected to spend a lot. And I think that because of the poor start and the antipathy towards the ACA and a variety of other issues, <coughs> exchange enrollment has <coughs> It, th that's the most worrisome part of the exchange enrollment is the, the the lack of enrollment of people who are relatively healthy. So there are a variety of things that can be done. There's, there range. There, they tend to be on the more technical side, from the reinsurance and and risk adjustment issues that John mentioned, towards things about advertising and outreach and defaults by employers. And <clears throat> the other day, the administration announced it was going to work with a lot of gig economy employers, mm -hmm. sort of things like that that it really should have been doing for quite a while to try and get people like that enrolled. A variety of things one can do there. So that's the first area. Second is um, part of the reason why exchange premiums are going up is because overall medical costs are going up a little bit more rapidly than they were. 
And the single biggest part of that is pharmaceutical costs going up. Mm -hmm. But you then see other things like administrative hassles and administrative costs going up, and you see increased use of services in some areas. <clears throat> the theme that I would propose for the next administration, so the, since 2010, the theme of the Obama administration has been cover more people. <clears throat> the, excuse me, the Affordable Care Act gave us the tools to do that, cover more people. The theme for the next administration has to be tackle health costs. Mm -hmm. Because no matter what happens with the exchange enrollment, if costs rise more rapidly, you will be in trouble. You'll be in trouble on the exchanges, you'll be in trouble on Medicare, you'll be in trouble on Medicaid, you'll be in trouble on the VA, you'll be in trouble on the Department of Defense, you'll be in trouble on everything. And if health costs rise less rapidly, then you can do whatever you need to do. <clears throat> so part of the issue with the exchanges was that the costs were higher than we thought, and that then led to problems when the programs ran out of money. Tackle health costs, if, if you had to have a laser-like focus, that's what you would do. And you don't, hopefully we'll get to it, you don't need legislation with the exception of the Medicare prescription drug pricing where you would need legislation. For many things, one wouldn't need legislation, so it's a ripe area, sort of A number one on the list. I'll just close with one other thing, which is a, a third area that the administration, next administration, I think will really need to focus on in addition to the exchange and the overall cost issues, and that's public health issues, particularly around issues of behavioral health and substance abuse. If you look at what it is that people in the exchange-like populations will get sick with, a lot of it has to do with behavioral health, substance abuse, mental illness type issues for which the supply of services is low, the difficulty in accessing services is extremely high. There's both a pure public health case, there's also sort of economic case, which is the more that you deal with it through those mechanisms, the less that it bleeds over into everything else that you do from exchange enrollment to disability insurance enrollment to Medicaid enrollment to a whole bunch of other things. And so I would re <clears throat> really look at public health responses as a complement to these medical um, uh, medical interventions and a way to address the healthcare market space. A lot of what we're talking about is, uh, you know, healthcare. You just mentioned now Medicaid and Medicare. Um, these are, you know, two programs that have been around for a long time, but they have changed under the ACA. Um, but the health cost is still a problem. There are estimates um, that Medicare reserves will start to run out uh, next decade. And um, it ha Medicaid has been the battleground in terms of the expansion. So um, with all of that taken into account, what, what do you see happening? And, and does it matter who wins for, for the future of these programs? So I have to say, I was a little nervous when David started talking because optimism is grounds for having your economist card revoked. <laughs> but of course, then he, he drew out some really first order economics issues that are embedded not only in the exchanges, which have been grabbing a lot of the headlines, but in what's going on in Medicaid and Medicare. And, and I very much agree that the path in covering more people is much more straightforward. We've seen millions of people covered by Medicaid who weren't before, millions of people enrolling in the exchanges who were otherwise uninsured, and so these have succeeded in expanding coverage to groups that weren't able to access those services before, although there remains a substantial uninsured population and ways to draw those unsubsidized folks into the exchanges seem mm. really important in driving stability in the exchange premiums, to have the risk pooling you were talking 
talking about, of healthy people and sick people all participating, subsidized or unsubsidized. Medicare is a major driver of how we spend our healthcare dollars, not just because of the raw size of the program, but because of the system level effects it has on healthcare delivery to commercially insured populations, to <coughs> Medicaid populations. When Medicare covers a service, almost all in other insurers need to cover that service as well. When Medicare overpays for certain kinds of therapy, those therapies get deployed on much wider sets of the population. So what Medicare covers and how it pays for it is key in driving overuse of some services that are really expensive with limited health benefits and underuse of other services, investment in public health and behavioral health issues, low cost, highly effective therapies that are really underutilized and under reimbursed. And if Medicare could get those incentives right, I think we'd see huge benefits to the Medicare program and its solvency, but also system level benefits in keeping health insurance more affordable across different market segments. So in thinking about what priorities for the next administration and beyond ought to be, getting Medicare right is a first order thing and a much more difficult nut to crack than figuring out how to cover more people, even though I think that's very important too. And thinking about the policy levers available in Medicare payment beyond the traditional fee-for-service system, which I think is pretty widely acknowledged to be wildly inefficient and very difficult to line up with incentives for high value care. If we could reform that, I think there'd be a lot of hope in keeping all of these public programs sustainable. And what about for Medicaid? Medicaid is doing a great job at expanding access to services that weren't otherwise affordable to low-income populations. Yeah. It may not be doing as good a job at delivering those services efficiently. So if the question is, which is better, to be on Medicaid or to be uninsured, it's unambiguous. People who are on Medicaid are much, much better off than if they were uninsured. They are much more financially secure, and that's what insurance is supposed to do in part, mm -hmm. is to protect you from getting evicted from your apartment because you couldn't pay your rent because of an expensive hospitalization of you or a family member. So it generates great financial protection for people who are enrolled. It expands their access to preventive care, to doctor's office visits, to prescription drugs. But they also use the hospital more often and they use the emergency department more often. So I think there'd been some hope that expanding Medicaid would actually be a tool to slow healthcare spending growth. I don't think that that's possible. I think expanding Medicaid costs money, and it can be money very well spent in improving mm -hmm. the well-being of low-income enrollees, but it doesn't save money. It costs money. So the question really then is if you want to cover those populations, could you improve the Medicaid program? Could you change the patient cost sharing to promote better management of chronic conditions, to get people out of the emergency department and into primary care? We haven't seen as much success on that front, and so maybe there's room for improving those programs or finding alternative ways of covering those populations. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that people who get health insurance through some subsidized mechanism benefit very much from that coverage. Right, and um, if if um, you know Hillary Clinton is elected, I mean she has certainly said that she wants to try to put find the money and put more money to that program, but it, it all comes down to money, I guess. Um, so we, we already saw Donald Trump talking about how it is going to be over for Obamacare when he's elected. Um, Hillary Clinton, as we've said, would like to expand that. Uh, so we're just gonna show a little clip now of Hillary Clinton uh, a little bit earlier this year, um, talking about her, her policies. Today, more than 90% of Americans are insured, 
And young people can stay on their parents' policies until they're 26. And I want to keep going, keep expanding coverage to more people, lower your out-of-pocket costs with a new tax credit, cap what you have to pay each month for prescription drugs, and finally allow Medicare to negotiate better prices for drugs. Well, since she brought up prescription drugs, I think we should talk a little bit about <laughs> drug pricing. Um, I'm sure you've read there's been a lot of stories about drug pricing. We've heard a lot about the EpiPen lately. Um, and as Bob said earlier, it is the one common area between Democrats and Republicans. So let's talk a little bit about that common ground and, and what you think that means could get done. No? Uh, so the, uh, anyone? No? Nobody wants to commit? No, they, they, they do. I, I think people who poll should not practice without a license. So uh, I am not an expert in drug prices. I am an expert that if I was trying to have a peace agreement, I would start with this issue. And you've got an import issue. Why don't we have options from Canada and Europe? We have an issue of negotiating prices from Medicare. We have the possibility of pre-review uh, of things before justification. Some of the, there are a lot of issues that are out there. And I would just say if the Congress was split and the president uh, from a different party, I would make that my first dinner. But I don't have how it would work. And I can assure you the people we surveyed do not know how it would work. So let's get my colleagues in here. John or David, you want to take this one on? Uh, I, I think that there, you know, there are, there is, as Bob suggests, agreement on, among both parties and independents that something should be done about prescription drugs. And I think, though, that on the Republican side, you know, we now have two enormous factions within the Republican Party that we didn't really see before this cycle. We have the Trump faction, which is far more populist, and as Trump himself is in favor of federal action on prescription drugs, mm -hmm. I don't think that's where Paul Ryan and the Ryan portion and the more traditional conservative base is in terms of government coming in and using the hand of the federal government to mess around with the market. And in particular, we've seen an enormous concentration of money from the, from the pharmaceutical industry going to Republicans. So I wouldn't be optimistic about that. I would suggest, though, I see one potential pathway that I don't think people are really focused on. There's a little piece in the ACA in uh, Title III. It's called the IPAB, the Independent Payment Advisory Board. And this is an entity that gets triggered if Medicare spending rises above a certain level. And it hasn't yet. But right now, the projections are it will get triggered in 2017. If the IPAB panel, which hasn't been appointed and probably will never get appointed, does nothing, then the authority to act to lower Medicare spending falls to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who has enormous leverage mm -hmm. to do what he or she might do. And Congress can't, can only override it if they come up with other things that raise at least as much savings. So I could see a scenario where it's not coming together at the table, but that if the IPAB process gets triggered, that's actually a pathway where you might actually see something happen, particularly around Medicare Part D and also prescription drugs in Medicare Part B. And David, what do you think? I think it's helpful to pull the issue apart a little bit. So there, there are two types of 
prescription drug issues. One is new drugs that are very expensive for which there's a single producer under patent and if you want it you have to pay some amount. So that's the kind of Savaldi case. And that's where you get into issues of, you know, how much money is going for R&D and how much mm -hmm. is for marketing and do you want pre-review and should we use Canadian prices and re-importation and all of that sort of thing in that kind of debate. There's then a second issue, which is drugs that have been out a long time, typically off patent or nearing the end of their patent life, for which someone decides they're essentially the only supplier of it, and therefore a drug that used to sell for $2.50 can now be sold for $25 a pill, or $250 a pill, or $25,000 a pill, yeah. or whatever it is. For that, I don't think M many of the issues associated with that second situation can be addressed through the FDA or through other purchasing authorities. So for example, when that pill goes from $2.50 to $2,500, another generic company could enter or the government could go to another generic company and say, look, mm -hmm. if you produce this for us, first off, you won't have to wait the 48 months through the FDA review process, but you, you can come in and we'll guarantee to buy for at least a few years of the drug at a price of $3 a pill or whatever. And actually you don't, for, for an, a lot of this, one doesn't need legislation. One could administratively address the issue through kind of bottlenecks in the FDA process and consolidation of the generic industry and so on. So I, I, so I, I think they ought to think about legislation. But even if John is right and there's no agreement because A, there's no agreement among Republicans right. and B, there's no agreement between Democrats and Republicans, that doesn't mean there's nothing that can be done on this issue. And I think it's a really, there's a lot of, of really interesting ways where they can make progress. And, and David highlights the importance of having competition and competitors to drive prices down. So thinking about streamlining the entry of the second competitor, we saw prices for innovative drugs like Savaldi drop substantially as soon as mm -hmm. there's a competitor. There needs to be competition in insurance markets, in provider markets, in pharmaceutical markets to really get high value for the patients out of the system. It's important to keep that competition and outside alternative in mind when thinking about the effects of negotiating prices. Uh, if the government negotiates prices, the negotiating leverage really depends on the willingness to walk away or exclude something from a formulary if the price isn't agreeable. And CBO estimates those savings from direct negotiation to be minimal because really there's no threat point to walk away and exclude the drug, in which case what is the negotiated price going to look like relative to the quasi-market set price. So thinking about driving competition to keep prices in line while promoting innovation, ensuring that new drugs do come on the market, seems like an important component of any solution. Do you think administratively there's room to create the kind of commission um, where they would watch for these big price increases and, and over 10%, you know, then they would sort of clamp down on them? That's something that, um, you know, certainly Hillary Clinton has talked about, but I mean, I think, you know, we've seen with Senator McCain, he tried to get a little bit at that 10%, you know, threshold with the legislation he introduced. Um, does that, does anyone have any thoughts on whether or not administratively that's something that could be done? And is that a possible solution for health costs? I don't think you could do it for all 
pharmaceutical spending. There may be mm -hmm. some ways to try to do it in terms of Medicare spending, as I mentioned, through the IPAB right. option or something like that. I have a hard time seeing how you would address the private growth of pharmaceutical mm -hmm. spending, which is as disruptive as what's going on in the public programs, or perhaps more so, without some kind of a statutory change. Did you want to add something? No, I was going to say our current policy is name and shame. Right, so <laughs> whenever your price goes up a lot, we drag you before yeah. some congressional committee. Does that and work? Get, uh, <laughs> does in my world, but it, probably it, doesn't <laughs> in their world. You know, it yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer probably works a little, and it would yeah. work even better if we had some, by the way, here's plan B. If it doesn't work, mm -hmm. here's what's going to happen. And as I said, it's not, it doesn't all have to be through the mechanism of we're going to buy the drug from Switzerland. Right. You know, it could, there are other ways of addressing some of it, too. So this prescription drug spending is an important part of um, these, uh, you know, marketplace individual insurance Obamacare plans. I mean, it is one of the things that the big insurers, the United Health and Aetna, they've pulled out of the exchange. It's one of the things they've cited as their unexpected costs. They're not in their actuarial models for, for the, the patients and members in their plants. Um, there are other costs as well that have, have gone up for them. And I'm just wondering if we could, if anyone has any thoughts about sort of what can be done to, to make these plans more favorable actuarially. There is a public option, but the government probably doesn't want to get involved in a plan that it is also going to be losing money on year after year. So does anyone have any thoughts about what the, you know, what the solve is for that? <laughs> Let me give you a few different areas, and then I think my colleagues will add and hopefully not subtract, but <laughs> I suppose that <laughs> remains to be seen. If you were to sort of sketch out the menu of what you'd do if you decided you wanted to tackle the issue of, of spending, number one would be pharma prices, and we've sort of spoken about that some, so let me just leave that there. You would address the issue of payment reform, and Kate brought this up, which is the general universally held view that you can't have a system that pays more for really expensive stuff and then ask why do you get so much more really expensive stuff that doesn't seem to be always necessary. So you have to go down that path. The administration has started to go down that path in a somewhat haphazard way, so it's got a bunch of different programs out there. Mm -hmm. So A, it could use some uh, uh, consolidation of them, not in the sense of like getting rid of some, but in the sense of being clear how they're interacting, but also some strategy for laying out where we're going to be in a few years from now so that everybody can adjust to what's going on. It's going to involve lots of new programs, which they have the authority to do, but they've got to be done in a way that makes sense. Um, IT issues, information technology issues. So far, we've spent a lot of money installing IT systems that have led to a fair amount of frustration, um, enhanced ability to bill better, but not a lot on the um, end of making medical care better for people and cheaper for people. So really addressing that in terms of what's needed given that there are these systems in place to actually make it work for people. There are ways that you can do that. Let me leave aside the technical things, but just in terms of addressing that. And a related issue, which is the administrative costs of medical care. So the typical hospital nowadays spends about 10 cents out of every dollar it collects, collecting that dollar. I, um, although we're not in North Carolina, Duke University Hospital System has 900 hospital beds and 1,300 billing clerks. 
which means if you're ever admitted there, you should get one and a half billing clerks in bed with you. In the typical Canadian hospital, there's so many fewer you get maybe a fingernail or something in bed with you. So you so have to address the issue, and it sort of shows up in all the prices that are paid and everything else and all, all the workers and so on. Again, there are ways of addressing it. The authorities to do so largely exist. It's a question that there hasn't been the willpower uh, or the, the, the broad thinking to do so. So those are just a few of the areas where you could really make a wholesale attack on the issue. Let me just give you a sense of the possibility. Remember that most of the studies are that about one-third of medical spending is not associated with improved health in any way. Okay? If you think it's anywhere near that, the solution to the exchange problems, the solution to Medicare, to Medicaid, is in fact sitting right there in front of you. And it is, does not have to do with tossing people off or you know, raising people's cost sharing or whatever it is. It's just getting rid of stuff that's not, that's not working. And, and the challenge David raises is how do you figure out what that low-value spending is? I think we all agree that the goal isn't to spend less on health care. The goal is to spend less on things that aren't producing a lot of health, spend maybe more on things that are underused and producing lots of health benefit. And if you could write down a rule that said we won't spend public dollars on things that don't promote health, that would be a great rule to write down but it's impossible to characterize so parsimoniously. There are very few services that are uniformly low value. They're low value in some circumstances, high value in others. Low value for some patients, high value for others. And that's why I keep coming back to payment reform that would create flexible enough incentives to ensure that people who need MRIs get MRIs, but that people for whom they are certainly contraindicated or not really likely to improve anything and maybe just make them feel better for something having been done or be profitable for the person running the MRI. We want to cut those out while preserving access to the beneficial ones. That might be giving providers more of a stake in directing patients to high value care. I think it's a lot to ask of patients who don't have an MD or even some who do to know the difference between which care is really valuable for them at that moment when they're sick, when a family member is sick, when they don't have time to shop around or do a lot of research. That's too much of a burden to place on them. But working together with their providers, they may be able to figure out this is actually not worth it or this hospital is gonna get me home healthier sooner that hospital's gonna keep me there for an extra three days, I don't wanna be there for an extra three days. Or this post-acute care setting will get me home and walking sooner than that post-acute care setting would. If providers are enlisted in that effort and patients themselves have the right incentives, then I think there's hope towards cutting down that low-value care, and that's about reforms like bundled payments or accountable care organizations or population-based payments where we remove some of the incentive to just use more and more care regardless of the value. And just really quickly, when you add in the insurers like in Medicare Advantage and you have this extra layer in there, how does that, how does that, does that help or hurt? I think insurance can be a player for good in all of this under the right circumstances. Insurance, first of all, provides an incredibly important risk pooling benefit. We are all better off because we have insurance. Otherwise, you're exposed to this 
unlimited out-of-pocket risk and you can't get even the really life-saving care. So insurance is a good thing. In a world where everybody is a perfect decision maker, insurance can stay out of it and, and write down a very uh, high cost sharing, high, high deductible plan with good out-of-pocket maximum exposure and, and that would be good enough. There's lots of evidence that both individual patients and their physicians don't make perfectly foresighted, perfectly knowledgeable decisions about their healthcare. So a well-designed insurance policy with value-based insurance design where patients mm -hmm. face limited cost sharing for stuff that works well and much higher cost sharing for stuff that's of questionable value, that can be a force working in conjunction with how the insurer pays the provider to drive higher value care. I don't think that's where we are yet. Got it. Um, so now we'll take some questions, Lisa. Great, thank you, thank you. And we'll just take a few. I know we want to take some from the audience too. These are from online. Uh, let's see, we can't talk about the 2016 presidential election without talking about women and women's health care. Whether it be abortion, violence prevention, or access to affordable preventative care, how would you say women risk losing or winning in this election? Women have benefited under the ACA's new provisions. Are we going to face a scale back? Should Trump take the White House? And what about funding for Planned Parenthood? I can talk about the politics, not the <laughs> substance. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, uh, first of all, the second value battle that goes on in the United States is around the issue of abortion. Uh, for some of us, we thought 1973 was the beginning and the end of the debate. Uh, but it turns out at the moment, 25% of uh, voters uh, are what they call litmus test voters. They're equally divided between the parties. They cannot vote for a person who does not share their values on abortion. And depending on the audience I'm with, you all believe that you all share the same values. But it turns out across the electorate that's not true. Uh, there, and people who are deeply concerned about abortion tend to be Republican voters. So that's where this issue comes from. That's very different than the issue of contraceptives, of paying for insurance. That's a whole other, uh, uh, other battle. Uh, for this, in all the years that I have covered politics, I never saw a presidential candidate put out Supreme Court names uh, based on whether or not basically their stand on abortion. Uh, if they were on the court, how would they go? That is really quite un unusual, but it shows how divided the country uh, is. So on the issue of abortion, if Republicans w were the dominant party, there would be many more restrictions, and we and others have polled on funding Planned Parenthood. It's overwhelming on that party, no. Or you switch right back to the Democratic lever, uh, yes, I want it widely available in most circumstances, and yes, uh, Planned Parenthood is to be funded. But a problem I have with uh, audiences uh, is that people are so polarized on this. And I, I just appeared today in a religious newspaper, not as attractively as I would like, uh, <laughs> noting that he said that it was possible that abortion could be made more available in the future. So, but I don't think they're in our audience. So I think it's very important to understand, along with these other divisions, that one issue and all the policies for it. Uh, so Secretary Clinton has proposed to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, which is a prohibit, uh, prohibition, pro, prohibiting federal funding of, of abortion through Medicaid. The other side is completely against that. So the election is going to matter on this. The other issues are not as polarized as the one issue about abortion. I think um, substantively, um, 
there's a proxy battle that disguises the values. And we hear it when we hear uh, Republicans say, we need to return control of health care to the states, versus Democrats who say, no, we want to keep the federal structure. And what that means in real life is the federal structure of the ACA, for example, has something called 10 essential health benefits, which includes all health policies have to include behavioral health, mental health and substance abuse, prescription drugs, and maternity care. Even employer plans. Yes. Yeah. And uh, not, not large employers, they, they already cover that. The smaller is traditionally insured. Mm -hmm. And then there's another part that requires all insurance policies to cover preventive services that have been designated as having clinical benefits by a group called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. That includes, for example, coverage of contraceptive services, which has been demonstrated to be clinically appropriate. So the Republican vision under giving this to the state means all of that goes away. Um, and all of those benefits that have been advanced to women disappear under a Republican where it's then thrown to the states. Some states would put it back in, many states would not. And so when we talk about the federal and the state mm. piece, it's disguising a big part of this values piece in a more arcane, well, should it be the state or should it be the federal? There's a lot more at stake in that conversation than is normally apparent to folks. Great, thank you. Um, here's another one. Whatever the current drawbacks of the ACA, if the Republicans prevail, are we going to have, we are going to have less coverage and more uninsured people. What are the most salient points of the Republican plan that would address the gaps between rich and poor? Would they focus on giving more power to the states to develop their own programs and Medicaid plans? I think it's just a question about what are the main points of the plan in this area? Good, I can pass that one up. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the, the main points are, um, as well, first there, there's Trump and then there's Paul Ryan. Um, both want to repeal the ACA. Uh, both want to allow health insurance to be uh, sold across state lines, which I think is a confusing and not that helpful solution. Um, both of them want to essentially turn the authority for the rules, the Nash federal rules that we have right now, onto the states where we would have then a mishmash, a patchwork among the states in terms of the regulatory structure. Um, there's some ambiguity about what they want to do about the Medicaid expansion. Um, if you look at Trump, he just repealed the ACA, presumably the Medicaid expansion with that. The Ryan plan has a curious little wrinkle in it where it says that, well, uh, we only want to say that from now on no states that have yet to expand Medicaid by January 2016 can do so in the future, which would exclude then the 19 states that have not yet acted. So there's an ambiguity there, and there's no cost or coverage evaluation that's been publicly released on the Ryan plan, so we don't know. But it's a but, but I just people ought to understand whichever side of the values divide you're on, these are really fundamental differences in terms of our health policy future in the United States in terms of what people can expect regardless of where they live or how much what you get will depend upon what part of the country you live in. I think there's a, um, just to pick up a little bit on what John said, <clears throat> there's a big philosophical difference between the parties where the Democratic Party thinks of health care along with other items like education and so on as areas that 
for which we should do more investing as a country. So we're going to find money however we can find it, ending this corporate loophole, ending that tax break, whatever it is, take the money and use it to invest in healthcare, education, environment, choose your favorite activity, all of the above. The key to the Republican Party view of the government is that the fundamental problem is taxes are too high and what we need are big tax cuts. Okay? So we need to lower corporate taxes, top individual taxes, estate taxes, all sorts of taxes. And if you're going to lower taxes, you have to at least claim that you're not going to blow up the deficit. And so you need to find the money from somewhere. And the biggest piggy bank that the federal government has is healthcare programs. So the approach to healthcare programs that one sees in the Republican proposals is basically we need to cut. And sometimes they have a policy associated with them that when claims will do good, like we'll, we'll create a voucher program for Medicare, okay, whatever, you may or may not like that. But oh, by the way, the voucher is not going to increase particularly. You say, why is that in there? And the answer is because that's what's giving you your savings. We're going to block grant Medicaid. Okay, whatever, you may or may not think block granting dollars is a good idea, but the block grant is going to grow really slowly well below the cost of the program. Why is that? So you can get your savings. Where do the savings go? To the tax cut side. So it's basically this difference between is healthcare a thing that you invest in because you want more of it and you want to give more to more people or is it the, where the money is going that's prohibiting you from having tax cuts? And that's, I think, the difference in what you'll see depending on which party is in charge. I, I think, though, there's actually, I, I think it's a little bit more fundamental than that. I think we have a fundamental disagreement in the U.S. society on whether access to medically necessary medical care should be a right or not. And that's the real dividing line, I think, at the core of this mm -hmm. that I don't think really existed 20 years ago. I, don't, I, I think there was far more of a bipartisan sharing of it, and it's just become so much starker, I think, over the past 10 years or so. Thank you. Um, I do just want to allow the studio audience to, we can take one question. Does anyone have a question before we wrap up? Hello. Um, thank you so much for the discussion. I um, was, as you were talking, I couldn't help but keep nodding my head over and over again. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> one of the things that um, I find in trying to develop this uh, provider-patient relationship, and I will say I am biased, um, is how we can, as providers, kind of protect ourselves. So this notion of um, using a lot of low-value uh, services is kind of linked to defensive medicine. Um, but there doesn't seem to be anything right now tackling that. So how do you get providers um, to really work with the patient in that level if they are worried about getting sued and um, other things like that? That's a great question and there's so much more complication underneath the idea. Providers will steer their patients towards high value care and everything will be great. There are clearly a lot of uh, technical and not technical details underneath that that make it work or not work. And let me start quickly with the defensive medicine point. I think there's a lot of evidence that our medical malpractice system needs to be reformed. It makes 
both types of mistakes. People who are victims of negligence are not necessarily compensated, and the people who are compensated are not necessarily victims of negligence. So to be technical about it, it's neither sensitive nor specific, and that's a problem with a system that's designed to compensate people for bad things that shouldn't have happened. So there's lots of reasons to reform it. That said, I don't think that it is the major driver of the rising healthcare costs that we see or of even of physician ordering of tests or uh, reactive defensive practices to try to prevent medical malpractice claims. It's important to fix the system, but fixing the system won't solve the healthcare problems. It's just too small a part of what we see driving healthcare utilization to be a primary solution. Doesn't mean we shouldn't fix it. What would need to happen for that relationship to work well beyond fixing the incentives or the disincentives introduced by defensive medicine practices would be making sure that we have really good risk adjusters. It sounds technical and wonky, and it is, but you don't want providers having to avoid really sick patients because they're unduly expensive. You want providers to think, wow, here's a patient I can do the most good for, and I'm going to get compensated appropriately. So you have to make sure that that measurement of the patient risk is adequate to have providers take on the high-risk patients. You need to make sure that the benchmarks for success are set appropriately. We've seen some exits of accountable care organizations that were high performers but couldn't beat their performance benchmarks because the benchmarks were based on having been high performers in the past as well. So getting those incentives lined up to draw in a lot of providers into that system is important. I fear that we'll be out of time before I could list all of the things <laughs> that need to happen, but I, I, I think it's vital to get into the weeds, to get those details right, or all of these promising levers are not going to succeed. Thanks, Kate. Uh, so we are almost out of time, but we don't want to leave without our traditional final takeaway from each of you. Um, very briefly, let's think and tell our audience here uh, about the one policy takeaway um, regarding you know, the future of healthcare after the election. I can start with Kate if you like That's to. <laughs> <laughs> I think the future of getting health system spending under control is with provider payment reform. We spend a lot of time talking about patient cost sharing and that's really important to consider and getting it right is important, but my biggest hope for the future is in fixing the way Medicare pays for benefits, in fixing the way that private insurers pay for the care that are delivered to their enrollees. If we can get the payment system lined up with high value care, then I think we can afford all of these public programs that I think are doing a world of good. Thanks, David. It's the value, stupid. <laughs> if there's one thing that we focus on, it's gotta be that. And if you do that, just do a quick part of math, the average American spends about $10,000 a year, more or less on medical care. If a third of that is not associated with better health, then you could do a tax cut, the equivalent of about $3,000 per individual in the country, just by getting the value equation to work right. Focus on that and you can do an enormous amount for people who haven't had very much. John? There were simpler, easier, saner ways to expand health insurance to many Americans who don't have it and none of those could get through Congress in 2009 or 10, or certainly in today's environment. Um, the structure that we have has 
increased coverage for about 20 million people who didn't have it. Uh, there are a number of ways that we can go much further than that um, without any huge political exertion. Um, and there's a lot at stake if we see what's been built over the past eight years unravel. And it will take decades before we can come back and try and fix this system again. Bob? Uh, so it's, it's simple. I'm out of the old school of peace negotiation. If you're going to sit down at the table, pick the one issue that you kind of agree on. So if it's all democratic, we're going to be talking about public options in its every flavor. And on the Republican about what whatever this thing would look like. But if it's split, uh, this is an issue because you can deal with investment and research. Uh, uh, there are a lot of pieces to pharmaceutical prices and development that you could do. And my feeling is that you have to have something, if uh, Hillary is president and they have a Republican Congress, that they can actually accomplish something and they can bring values. I, I think we're at a very serious stage if we have a split government at this level of polarization. So it looks to me like this is the one issue that you get people for dinner. And the wisdom is, can you leave before dessert or can you get something done? But that's what I would do. Uh, you could also continue this conversation on the Forum website. Again, that's forumhsph.org. And we hope that you'll tune in for the next forum. This one will be the chronic pain epidemic, what's to be done. It's Thursday, November 10th, and it's at 1230. Thanks we so may much. Be there again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.